Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? So glad you're tuning in to another episode here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you as always, and I'm just excited as we continue to look at Tuesday of the Passion Week. So this is part three, podcast 92. So if you've missed any previous podcasts, I encourage you, you can go to our main website, standstrongministries.org. Click on podcast up there on the top and you will have on SoundCloud, there are all the archives, including uh, the notes that we make available for our listeners. So just encourage you as you continue to study God's word that you take the opportunity to share this podcast with your friends. I just was traveling recently and I had several people tell me that their men's group is going through Stand Strong in the Word. They're taking the study notes, they're listening to the podcast during the week, and then they talk about it when they meet once a week. There was another group that recently told me that they are taking this and they're going through it in their small group Bible studies and discipleship. So that's exciting to hear. So if there's a way that you can take these messages, my friends, take these podcasts as we're going through a chronological teaching of the Gospels and share them with your sphere of influence, let me know about that. Shoot us an email, info at standstrongministries.org. And as always, we are here to pray for you. So with that being said, let's jump now into Matthew chapter 23. We're still... Uh, on Tuesday, as I mentioned earlier, on Passion Week. And this is the open rebuke of the religious leaders here on Podcast 92. So we jump right into this chapter where we find verse 1 where it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, now Mark 12 verse 38 says, And in his teaching he said, Luke 20 verse 45, And in the hearing of all the people he said to his disciples, So when you take the Synoptic Gospels into account, we see that Jesus now transitions his conversation with teaching these parables, and they're questioning Jesus' teaching and his authority, right? And part of the day early on, now transitions to rebuke the religious leaders in front of not just his disciples, but a hearing on all the people around the temple. Now, this open rebuke was prompted by what Jesus had just dealt with in Matthew chapter 22. He turns his attention to the crowds and he reproves the scribes and the Pharisees while offering several key warnings to not only his disciples, but to the followers, to people who believed in him. Now, what we're going to be doing is as we're looking at these woes, these judgments, we're going to be seeing like self-righteousness of the religious leaders. We'll be looking at self-absorption and a few other things that Jesus is going to condemn them for. And so here, right off the bat in verse 2, Jesus says the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. That literally means they have seated themselves, meaning they have given themselves these high positions. Verse 3, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. So here, Jesus is confronting the self-righteousness as he often did. And you clearly see that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. So here what Jesus is saying is these religious leaders, these overseers, these teachers of the law, they demanded respect. Now, we are to honor people that are above us. 
were to respect them. However, they were hypocritical in how they lived out the law. So he's saying, do not do what they do. Don't practice what they say you ought to do because they're hypocrites. He's encouraging the crowd to obey the word of God, not the words of man. The system of these religious leaders, the system of religious observances was actually preventing the people from serving and worshiping God. Remember, when he entered into Jerusalem for the final time, he cleanses the temple. He's rebuking them because of their greed, because of how they're taking advantage of the temple of the Gentiles, or excuse me, the court of the Gentiles. And he was showing them how they were taking advantage through taxation, the people who didn't have much. They're interfering with their sacrifices. They're interfering with their relationship with God. So here in verse 4, he says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What Jesus is saying here is even their own religious traditions and practices became too burdensome for them. The leaders were harder on the people than they were on themselves, and yet they boasted how persistent they were in obeying their laws. So Jesus, on the other hand, remember when he told his people, he told the crowds, he told the disciples in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is a strict contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders. So now in verse 5, Jesus says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So you go from self-righteousness to self-absorption, which is linked. So what Jesus is saying is, They did things religiously for man's attention, for man's approval, rather than for God's glorification. Everything they did and everywhere they went, it was centered around them. It was about them. Now, one commentary puts it in perspective of what these phylacteries were. They're just known as defenses or protections. They're also called tefillin or prayers by most Jews. Phylacteries consisted of Uh, strips of parchment on which were inscribed these four texts, Exodus 13, verses 1 through 10, Exodus 13, 11 through 16, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 21. These were enclosed in a square leather case on one side of which was inscribed the Hebrew letter Shin, to which the rabbis attached some significance. This case was fastened by straps to the forehead just between the eyes, the Wide phylactery spoken of by Jesus in our text verse refers to an enlarging of the case so as to make it conspicuous, end quote. Another commentary writes, quote, Numbers 15, 38 through 40 and Deuteronomy 22, verse 12 legislate the fringes of a Jewish garment, which were intended to act as a reminder of all God's commandments. These scriptures called for four discrete tassels, But the Pharisees ostentatiously extended this to the whole hem of their garments in a desire to appear religious, end quote. So you see how they would take something from scripture and make it about themselves. So in verse eight, he says, 
but you are not to be called rabbi, which means my great one, my master, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor. That means an authoritative guide, the Christ. So Jesus talks about self-righteousness, self-absorption, and then he starts warning them about who you turn to as your leader. Jesus also warns his disciples in the crowd not to pursue titles, but family. Religious systems are built on positions of power, whereas Jesus was building up community and equality under his rulership. That's why in verse 11, he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. What Jesus in essence is saying, and this is a theme repeatedly, and you go back to John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, remember about washing the feet and being that lowly servant? What Jesus is saying in front of the crowd as he's rebuking, and we're going to see the woes are going to come in verse 13, greatness is measured not on how many serve you, but how many you serve. He says in verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the, the reverse of what the Sanhedrin had been teaching the people, right, is what Jesus is saying. And this was a central message of Jesus. Matthew 18 verses 1 through 5, Luke 17 verses 3 through 10. And so now in verse 13, he turns his attention back to the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So here Jesus is now going to lay out eight denunciations or known as woes. These are impending judgments. They're laments to the scribes and the Pharisees. So here we see in this first woe, it's preventing people from the kingdom of heaven. The religious leaders appointed themselves arbiters of heaven, if you go back to Luke 11, verse 52. But the contrast is people who are poor in spirit, Matthew 5, verse 3. So what they were doing was heresy. Now, verse 14, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So the second woe is now oppressing those who are in need. We're going to see in a minute when Jesus is going to watch a widow who doesn't have much, and yet she's still giving all that she has as an act of worship. But he's saying as religious leaders, you care more about yourself. Now, as we're going through these woes, you have to look, my friend, at your circumstance today. For example, the spiritual leaders that you have in your life, uh, the condition spiritually that is of your church. And in this case here, this woe, this direct and pending judgment is on people who take advantage of others, like the prosperity doctrine that you tell people, if you send in money, you'll be healed. That's taking advantage of people. They cared more about impressing others than actually caring for those under their care. This, what Jesus is calling out is profiteering, and that's wrong. You're not to take advantage of people for their money or what they can give you and call that ministry when you're taking advantage of them. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is also found in Mark chapter 12, verse 40 and Luke chapter 20, verse 47. 
So this is the third woe, which is about indoctrinating people to be converted to a false religion. So they weren't saving souls. They were condemning them. This is deception. So you see hypocrisy, you see profiteering, and now you see this deception. So verse 16, he says, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears, meaning take an oath by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. So the fourth woe is false oaths, false promises. Jesus calls out the religious leaders for not swearing to God, but to money. So this elaborate scheme of oath-taking made it possible to get out of commitments and to make money off of it. This is a whole scheme. This is a scam. That's what this is. You go from deception to scamming people. So in 18, he says, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. This is powerful. Jesus then is inserting the temple conversation about sacrifice because after these woes, again, we're going to go to this widow and we're going to see literally and figuratively, spiritually, what true worship, what true sacrifice, what is truly sacred in the eyes of God. So what Jesus is saying here from verses 16 through 22 of Matthew 23, the altar is more valuable and important than the oath itself because it represents the communion between God and man. And the religious leaders had lost that. So when a Jew came to the altar to take an oath, that oath was a deep pledge with God. That's why they went to the altar. They were communicating with God. They're making this oath with him. And we know that God cannot break his oath. He's immutable. He's perfect. Thus making every oath taken as binding between them and God. Barclay writes, quote, To the Jew, an oath was absolutely binding so long as it was a binding oath. Broadly speaking, a binding oath was an oath which definitely and without equivocation employed the name of God. Such an oath must be kept no matter what the cost, any other oath might be legitimately broken, end quote. So in essence, these religious leaders would make promises, would make oaths, and they had no intention of keeping them. They're, they don't even fear and revere God. They can kind of employ their own tactics and say, why my oath wasn't as strong because I didn't swear to this over here. No, it's to God and to God only. So in verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected, meaning no longer pay attention with the weightier, more central, more decisive matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So pause there for a moment. So up to this point with all these different woes, remember, if you go back to self-righteousness and self-absorption and profiteering and the deception, and the scheming. Notice Jesus says the weightier things is justice 
and mercy and faithfulness. They take advantage of widows. They themselves are the arbiters. They're not being faithful with what they've been given and they're not faithfully living out the word of God. These, Jesus now says, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So in verse 24, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So the fifth woe is observing ritualism over godliness. The religious leaders majored in the minors and they minored in the majors. They were so meticulous in their rituals of tithes and and not eating unclean animals that they neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. So their way of doing things was far more significant than obeying the laws of God. And my friends, that is still true today. There are countless religions out there where they say, here's what you need to do. Here's what we've figured out and how you are to live a life of peace with God. And some of it's true, but if it takes away from Jesus, if it takes away from justice and mercy and faithfulness, if it takes away from the explicit teaching for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, not of works, least any man should boast. It is false. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, if it runs contrary to that, it is false. So Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 25, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this sixth woe is about their hypocritical living. They appear to be godly, but they're not. So what Jesus does to illustrate this is he uses dishes and a sepulcher to draw this out. They cared more about their external religiousness than they did about their internal holiness. There was nothing internally holy about them. He says they were whitewashed tombs. He's saying again, like you're a grave. You're dead in the inside, but in the outside, you look nice and clean. The religious leaders, remember, they took great pleasure in presenting themselves holy in their daily lives. And yet they were dead inside. They betrayed themselves to be something they never were because it supplied them riches and power. And that still goes on today. Think of the people that say they love Jesus, but they love money more. And it's pretty obvious, my friends. It's pretty obvious. It doesn't take long to figure out people's true intent, their true condition of their heart, especially when you see greed is at the heart of it, right? It's at the center. So this clean outside, clean inside, one commentator writes, quote, first century Pharisees debated whether to cleanse the inside or outside of a cup first. Shemites doubted that it mattered either way, but the Helalites required cleaning the inside first. So Jesus appears to agree with the Helalites here, but unlike the Pharisees, he, see, he speaks figuratively about the human heart, end quote. So again, the Shemites and the Helalites, they may debate about external matters, about being ritually purified, but Jesus takes those as examples to illustrate a greater point that you're dead spiritually. So the whitewashed tombs is very significant 
and really gets to the heart of the issue. You see, because as Jews are about to arrive on Passover, and they've done this many times before, what they would do is is they would paint the tombs white, and they would do this to prevent people from touching a grave and therefore becoming unclean. So it was a way of marking uh, deadness, uncleanliness. So the point Jesus is making is you could try to cover up your deadness, but you can't. So in verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. So the seventh woe is falsehood. The religious leaders would build monuments venerating dead prophets, right? That their forefathers had killed. And then they act as though they honor them according to the truth that they preach. Just like, remember, leading up to this. That's why he's confronting them. You say, well done, uh, master, uh, good teacher. What you say is in fact true, but then they don't follow him. Then they don't turn to the crowd and say, I repent, I am wrong. Listen to him, don't listen to us. So that's what they've been doing all of these years. They acted as though they honored them and what they preached, but in the end, they thought it a lie, just like Jesus. They want to try to catch him in a lie. They too would have shared in the persecution in the killing of the prophets, just like they're, they're going to have Jesus be crucified. So he says in verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? That's Gehenna, which is referring to eternal punishment. So this is the ultimate question that is posed by Jesus after rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. What are you going to do about this now? With all these woes, what are you going to do? Are you going to repent or are you going to go to hell? In verse 34, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murder between the sanctuary and the altar." So Jesus tells them he has and will continue to send prophets to speak the truth. He doesn't want them to go to hell. He's going to give them all the opportunity to repent. So even after he leaves, we know the church comes. We know the apostles. And yet they're going to continue, the religious leaders that is, to persecute the church. Now this phrase, when Jesus says, able to the blood of Zechariah, the common arrangement of the Jewish scriptures was able, meaning the first martyr, and ended with Zechariah, not Malachi. And that's what he's saying. So the totality of our Jewish scriptures, you've rejected in essence. And verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So unless the religious leaders repent, again, Matthew 23, 5 through 7, Mark 12, 38 through 39, and Luke 20, verse 46, unless they repent, they will face harsh judgment. So he warns them. He gives them these woes. And he tells them what's going to happen if they don't repent. Now, the condensed version of Mark chapter 12, which is also found in Luke chapter 20, verses 46 through 47, says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. 
they will receive the greater condemnation. So those are the woes to the religious leaders. And now we're told what happens in chronological order, a public affirmation of this widow that's found in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, and Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. So this is later now in the day. And it says here in verse 41 of Mark chapter 12, and Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. That means the temple treasury, that this is the receptacle. This was an open area where people were able to give. And it says here that many rich people put in large sums. So after Jesus gave these seven woes, he then decides to go into the court of women and he wants to observe the manner in which people were giving to the Lord. And you remember leading up to this, he just warned the disciples of greed and, 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 and the pride of the scribes and the Pharisees and how they were taking advantage of widows so this is very appropriate. And this is one thing I love about Jesus is he practiced what he preached. He just didn't talk about it, about these things philosophically or in theory. So this was an appropriate way of him witnessing a certain widow who gave all she had to the Lord. And before I go any further, I just want to say that this is a great picture of God loving the least of people. Because you think about your circumstances, you think about how easy sometimes it is to judge people based on the way they look or who they're hanging out with or what kind of car they drive or how they live, what they have to offer. And so it's like the whole Saul and David issue. And there's that all, there's always going to be that tension. And so this is a great reminder where Jesus is going to publicly demonstrate someone who is righteous and someone who's not self-absorbed. The religious leaders... They were the marker, they were the standard, but they were hypocrites. They were whitewashed tombs. They were dead inside. And yet he's going to find an unlikely person who's going to give all she has. And Jesus is going to say, bingo, that's what I desire of you. Kenneth West in his commentary writes this quote, Our Lord's teaching in the court of the Gentiles had ceased. And he had passed within the low marble wall, which fenced off the inner precinct of the temple from the Gentiles. He was now in the court of the women. Here were 13 chests placed at intervals around the walls, each marked with the purpose to which the offerings were to be devoted. This colonnade under which these chests were placed was called the treasury. Here our Lord sat down and he looked with a discerning eye how the crowds threw and their money, end quote. And so we're told here in verse 42, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. In Greek, it's lepta, which make a penny. So it's one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which was a day wage. So this poor widow gave the smallest amount of coinage in circulation at that time. This act wasn't for show, Remember, they, they're, they're, there were these treasury boxes that were labeled. So it wasn't just one area to drop money. And so the widow certainly didn't have a motive to impress, right? To give to big causes because she had big money. She simply was just demonstrating her love for God, according to Mark chapter 12, verse 30. So this was a true act of worship. And so in verse 43, and Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had 
to live on. Wow. You see, oftentimes when we refer to this passage of the widow, we say that she gave out of, out of her poverty everything she had, but we neglect to finish what Jesus said, all she had to live on. That's saying everything. The others gave out of their wealth. They had more than what they gave to live on. So they weren't really sacrificing much. Yeah, great that you're giving to help. But this widow gave out of her poverty. It's And, and so the key thing here, my friends, that we have to get, and I'm preaching to myself, I'm taking this as I've prayed through it and read through it and as I'm looking at it now, it's not about the portion of giving that God cares about. We oftentimes do that. We look at the number and think, okay, well, I'm going to give more now. Now, if God's convicting you to do that and you're responding, awesome. But it's not about the portion of giving that God cares about. Catch this. It's the proportion that matters. So the others gave out of their wealth, whereas the widow gave out of her poverty. So she was not looking at the portion to God that she was giving, but the proportion of how she gave. The widow was about giving, not withholding. And that is the message. The widow was about giving, not withholding. So we can give, but we can still be withholding, meaning we should be giving more. But we're looking at the portion, not the proportion. That is true consecration before God when we don't withhold anything. So my friends, as I close out on this podcast with you, as I always am reminded, I don't know what you're going through. I know there are people that listen to this podcast that are in the Middle East, and some of you are facing greater hardship than what we are facing in the States. And I thank God for you. I do. And I want you to know that as we do pray that God lays on our heart the conditions of people who listen. Some of you guys are depressed. Some of you are suffering. Some of you may have an addiction in your life that you can't, you can't overcome. And you know what? You can't do it on your own. You may have fallen upon this podcast and you're looking for relief. You're trying to find God. You're trying to find answers. Maybe you are confused in a relationship. Maybe you're in an abusive situation. Maybe you're a new convert, you're a new believer in Christ and you're just growing in your faith. And then of course I know, because I hear from some of you, you've been walking with the Lord faithfully for many, many years and you come to this podcast and you download these episodes because you love Jesus, you love his word and you want to just grow closer in your intimate relationship with him. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the condition of your heart, I want you to know God loves you. And so whatever you took from today, if when you look at these woes, if there's self-righteousness in your life, if there's self-absorption, if there's hypocrisy, if you've been profiteering, if you've been deceptive in what you've been doing at church or in a relationship or in a marriage, whatever it is, or at work, at school, that you repent. And just like we saw with this widow, don't give out of portion, but out of the proportion of what you have. Don't withhold from God. Give what God has called you to give. And you know what? He will bless you. So thank you, my friends, for listening to this episode. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.